people share a testimony of how God used them to proclaim the gospel. And uh, it was really exciting this week. I think it was Monday. Got a text from uh, Jason Davies and uh, gave some great news about an opportunity he had had to share Christ. And as he texted that and we went back and forth a little bit, uh, right away, I said, Jason, would you be willing to tell our people how God used you in somebody's life? And he said, absolutely. So we've asked him, Jason, if you'll come and uh, share what God's put on your heart regarding that. <clears throat> My bad, I'm sorry. All right. Well, um, I don't know how many of you know me and what I do, but um, I work for a nursing home, work in a nursing home. And if you know anything about nursing homes, um, they're a lot different than they were probably 30 years ago. We have a lot younger uh, crowd and, and, and sicker. Um, <clears throat> so I, I came across an individual who was under 40, um, a young man, two children, wife, and he has been diagnosed a little while back with uh, cancer that's terminal. And um, so he was struggling with all that, and, and he doesn't know how much time he has. Um, if you listen to the doctors and the physicians, he doesn't have much time left. So I just felt a burden um, for this individual, and I wanted to talk to him. And, you know, for some reason, it just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't let it go. I needed to see this guy. I needed to talk with him. So I went up to his room the first time, and we started to talk, and I'm kind of building up my, my courage to get into it and trying not to embarrass anybody. I don't want to step on his toes. I don't know what his background is. So as I'm getting ready to talk to him, a nurse comes in the room and says, you know, she needs to tend to his care. So I stood for a couple minutes. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to give you the dignity. And I, I left, and I came back later, and he was sleeping. So I said, okay, well, God, that's, I guess I'm, I'm going to do what you need me to do. So... Um, Maybe a day or so later, I, I came back up, and we're sitting there in the room, and finally it's quiet, the door closed, and I said, listen, I, I, I really have something I want to tell you, and I'm, I'm building up to it. I said, I really, I want to ask you, you know, and as soon as I go to get it out of my mouth, his cell phone rings. So I stood there, and I stepped back, and I let him answer the phone, and he said, it was his wife. So I said, you know what, let me, let me come back. So I came back a couple hours later. Once again, he was busy with some visitors. So I thought, boy, oh boy. You know, and, and it, I have to admit, I never thought I'd be standing up here saying, quoting Mike Tyson. But I think it, it applies. I'm going to tell you what he said. So if you don't know, Mike Tyson was a boxer. Known for many things, but he was a good boxer. And one of the things that he said was, everyone has a game plan until someone punches you in the face. So I thought, well, I guess I need to regroup and think this thing through. So finally, it was probably about a day later, two days later, I, I walk in. Um, this, was, this was Monday after the weekend. I walk in, and I thought, you know what? I had to take care of something across the hallway from where this, this patient was. So <clears throat> I walked in the room. It was a good opportunity. And I knock on the door, and he sees me and acknowledges me. And I said, hey, you have a couple minutes? Absolutely. Come on in. Literally, as soon as I took three steps in the door, his cell phone rings. 
but out of my mouth came something I never thought I'd ever say was, hold on, this is more important, what I have to say is more important than what's that phone call, could you call them back? <laughs> so he said, yeah, absolutely. So, and I just, I just remember thinking to myself, wow, I, I can't believe that came out of my mouth, but I'm, I'm done with waiting here. So we, um, we went through the gospel message and I, I, you know, I, I talked to him about salvation. Um, and you know what he said to me was, I, I totally intent, eyes right at me. He said, you know, I, I, no, no one's ever told me that. And I said, well, God sent me to tell you. And I said, you know, I don't know how much time I have left. You don't know how much time you have left. You know, I, I could be taken from this earth within seconds. I don't know. But I said, well, one thing that's, that's most important is you know where you're going. And he said, I'm not really sure where I'm going. And I said, well, here's the deal. I've been coming back time and time again. This is my third time to tell you, you can be sure. So after we went through the, the gospel message, he said, you know what, Jason, he said, if, if we could do this, he said, I, I really believe that. And he said, I would like to accept the Lord into my heart. So, so amen. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny. I've, you know, in your life, you've done a lot of exhilarating things, you know, if you've gone on amusement rides or you've ridden a motorcycle or whatever, but I, I cannot express how exhilarating it is to do what God's asked you to do. I really, I really can't. I, there is nothing that compares. And I, I told Pastor, I don't even remember leaving the room. I don't remember driving home. I mean, it's just, it's exhilarating. Um, but I took three takeaways from this, and I thought I would just, I would share them. One of the, the two verses that um, were brought to my attention that we shared uh, was in Isaiah 12, 2, and it says, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Conversely, in Psalm 56.3, it says, when I am afraid, I will trust in thee. So we had a conversation about, well, you can trust and not fear. You could fear and not trust. But regardless, God is there for you. And, you know, so it kind of brought in, into light that even people that are biblical that were in the Bible have fears and trust issues. And, you know, so that was one of the things that we've been talking about as each day we go in and I talk with this gentleman. Um, you know, I actually felt the need to ask for forgiveness to say, you know, it, it's the greatest thing to find a, a place that you know you're supposed to be. I've been in the nursing home business for a long time. And I have to tell you, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's the situation that the world is in now. Maybe people are more open. But I have to tell you, I ask forgiveness to say, Lord, forgive me for not being as aggressive as I should be. I have people here that are dying, literally dying each day, um, and that need to know the Lord. And, you know, I guess the, the big takeaway for me was that I'm standing in the middle of my mission field looking for my mission. And it occurred to me, you're right there. You're right there. You know, so anyway, I took that away. And, and the last thing that I just wanted to say was, once again, this is within one week, all this information and, and just overwhelming, and, and I think it's just great. But if you're any kind of history buff, just recently they found um, some remnants of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I just found this so fitting. They haven't found any pieces of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 50 or 60 years. So now the pieces that they found, they put together, and the verse that came out was Nahum 1.5, which says, mountains quake before him, the hills melt away, the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. And I thought, wow, 
what an amazing, amazing thing to not only serve a God who makes the whole earth tremble, but the other side of that is, how could you not love somebody who died for you? And, uh, you know, if, if you had somebody, a friend that gave their life for you 2,000 years before you were ever born, how could you not love them? How could you not say what, what his word is and preach, you know, the word to people? So, anyway, those are some of the things that I learned. Um, I just thought that I would, I would share them with you. Thanks for everybody that prayed. Um, and we'll see another brother in heaven soon. So, thank you. Amen. Jason, thanks, man. Thank We'd been praying for Jason, I think, for a couple of weeks, a couple of us that uh, meet regularly and uh, had been talking about those opportunities. And praise God. God will use you and me when we're willing. When we're prayed up and prepped and ready to go, God will use us. That's just an unbelievable, an unbelievable thing. Well, uh, man, thank you, Jason. So what comes to mind when I use the word, I say the word following, following. Some of you, may immediately, ah, social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, right? I follow certain people. I, I get their feeds. I get their Facebook posts. I get notification when Instagram has something new or, or when there's a new tweet sent out and and, and then others follow you. I don't know if anybody follows me. I haven't looked because I don't hardly follow anybody. I've told you that before, but uh, so following. You may think of all of that. You may think, too, of um, the kids' game, follow the leader, right? When the person just all over the kids follow that person and do exactly what that person does, they go where he goes and say what he's, everything, the whole deal, follow the leader. Or what came to mind as I began to think about this idea of following was riding horses at Camp Manitoumi. <laughs> That's the camp where uh, I, with Jane and I in the state where we were youth pastor for 10 years out in the Chicago area and we had a camp in the middle of the state and uh, great, great ministry that camp had as youth pastor and wife and our kids John was there, and, and, um, and we just had to grow. Well, they had horses, like a lot of camps do, right? And uh, so one afternoon, uh, it was a regular occurrence for st our campers, and you, you get on the horses, they load you up, and even if you've never ridden before, it's okay. And they get on there, tell you, tell you what to do, and then the front horse, they start, right? And what happens? Your horse follows the horse in front of you. That's all that it is. The horse behind you, that horse is following your horse. If somewhere along that ride, one of the horses decides to go off the trail and just head out into the woods, all of the rest of the horses do too, right? And here you are ducking down branches, trying to stay on your horse, thinking you're going to get knocked off because you're off the trail 
and horses follow the leader. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're going to follow the leader, it is critical, really important to know who the leader is and where they're going. Just like those horses. It is critical. The question in the church at Corinth was simply, who's following who? Who's following who? Because if you'll remember in chapter 1, Paul introduced us to division and disunity and disagreement. The church was divided over which leader they should follow. And various groups of believers had gotten together and were following different leaders. They were campaigning for their favorite leader and following him. And there were groups saying, I follow Paul. And others, well, I follow Apollos. And then I follow Peter. And then there were the uh, proud spiritual people. Well, I follow Christ. And, and, and it was dividing the church. And Paul, in chapter 1, is telling them, you cannot do that. That is not the way this ought to work. It was creating division, disagreement, disunity. And worse than that, the church was being distracted from the mission. You just heard Jason talk about what our mission is for every one of us who know Jesus Christ. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel. More people, more like Jesus. And that wasn't happening like it ought in Corinth because they were too busy campaigning for their favorite leader in the church. They were distracted. Remember Paul had said, our message, the message of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified that's what jason was able to share with jason jesus christ and him crucified the message of the cross and it changed his life that's what paul's concerned about so my question for you this morning is who are you following who are you following. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the entire chapter today, and uh, trust as we get through this that it will be an encouragement to you to follow Jesus. But that was the question, because the believers in Corinth weren't sure, and it was turning out to be quite a mess, dividing the church, creating a disagreement, quarreling was a regular pastime of the believers in that church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, um, Paul is going to wrap up his discussion, his sharing with the believers there on unity. He's taken the first three, actually he takes the first four chapters, we'll get the last chapter four today. And, and the first four chapters in the book of the letter, Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians as we call it, dealing with unity, we're going to wrap that up today. But again, understand that Paul believes unity is critical, very important into the church. And of course, because it's been part of the word of God, obviously God takes unity seriously and we must 
as well. So in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul's been addressing this problem. The, the, the people in the church were confusing the way that the church uh, f- should follow their leaders with the way that the townspeople there in Corinth were following their favorite philosopher or their favorite eloquent speaker, public speaker, or sophist, if you remember when we talked about them. And uh, they were confusing them. And Paul said, you must stop pursuing human wisdom. That is foolishness. You must pursue God's wisdom. Paul made it clear that the foundation of the church, we saw this last week, is Jesus Christ. And that they as a church must build everything on that truth. They must build on the gospel. Jesus Christ, the foundation of that church. Now we get to chapter 4. And as Paul wraps things up, he's teaching us again one last lesson on unity. And he begins by telling them in verse 1. He says this. Here's how you ought to think about us. This is what you need to view or how you need to view us as your leaders. Verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us. How you ought to reckon us. How you ought to view us. How you ought to think when you understand who we are as your leaders. He goes on and he says, Regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. We talked about the mystery that's been revealed earlier in chapter 3 when Paul talked about a mystery, truth that was once hidden, undisclosed, which has now been made known, now been revealed, and that truth was Jesus Christ and the cross. And, and that's what Paul is saying. We are, you, as your leaders, you should look at us as servants of Christ. Paul had already identified himself and Apollos back in chapter 3 and verse 5 as servants. In fact, he said, what after all is Paul is, is what after all is Apollos and what is Paul only servants through whom you came to believe? Jason, this last Monday, was a servant, simply a servant whom God used to bring Jason to Jesus Christ. Paul, the leader, the beginner, the founder of the church at Corinth, is saying, We are just servants through whom you came to believe as the church began. And Paul is saying the word servant there in in verse 5 of chapter 3 is the word that we typically use for deacon. But he wasn't claiming to be a deacon because that word is used regularly as servant throughout the New Testament. But here the word is a different servant. It's not the deacon word. Here the word means under rower. The large ships, the warships that the Roman Empire would use or that the Greeks would use when they went into battle against another nation would have a couple of levels. And on the lower level, they would have the slaves, the servants who rode on two sides and they had to follow orders. They had to work together in unison so that the boat 
went straight or whichever direction they were headed instead of just around in circles. You ever been in a rowboat? Right? And you get in that rowboat and you start going and, or a canoe. You pick it or a kayak. It doesn't matter. Any of those boats with paddles. And you get in there and if you don't know what you're doing, all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, you're paddling and, and, and you're going in wonder. You're going in circles. It takes unison for these under rowers, these who were servants. They were assistants who must obey. They were under the orders of their master. But the difference between the word here and back in chapter 3 is that here the under rower word was a free person, not a slave, not owned by somebody. They were free and they chose to be there and work together as a servant. This under rower had no significance except in relation to his master. Think about that. That's what Paul's saying. He and Apollos and others who proclaim the truth of the gospel, others who build the church, they had no significance other than their relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what made them important. That's what mattered. And that's why Paul was saying, this isn't about following me. It's not about following Apollos. It's not about following Peter. It's about following Jesus. Because leaders are servants. Only servants. And servants get their value because of the master for whom they're working. Let that sink in a little bit. But he says, not just servants of Christ. He goes on, he says, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. And, and who are those? Well, that word entrusted is the word for steward. He says that then in verse 2, now it is required that those who have been given a trust, that's the word steward. You've heard us talk about stewardship, right? Well, many times we use that word and every, everybody thinks that anytime we talk about stewardship, we're only talking about money. Well, that's part of it, but it's everything that we are, all that we have. A college roommate of mine has been used of God for the last 30 years to help churches and Christian ministries, colleges and universities and camps and rescue missions to raise money for the cause of Christ. He called me last year one day. He said, Glenn, oh, I just want you to know we're on our second billion. I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of money. And he wrote, he's written some books and he said this about stewardship. Stewardship is everything you do after you say, I believe. Everything you do after you say, I believe. So it's not just money. It's your abilities. It's your talents. It's your time. It's, it's your money. Yes, all of those things. God uses us for him. The idea of a steward is that we are a manager. We've been entrusted. We've been given something. Paul says that trust is the gospel. We've been given the gospel to use and we're responsible to tell others that great truth, that life-changing truth. 
And the idea of a steward is not an owner, but a manager. That's why when we talk about stewardship, we recognize that it's not that it's ours. We're managing all that we are and all that we have for God. Why? Because we're stewards. We've been given everything that we have. And we have been given the message of the cross, the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we are to take that truth that we've been blessed with and use it to tell others. The steward was the chief household slave during the Roman Empire times. And, and, and the owner of the home would trust that steward with all of his stuff, everything, even his family, his household, his money, his property, all of it, to manage it and make the most of it for that owner. But then he says something here in the end of verse 2. He says, it is important, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So this idea, Paul's saying, this is what we are. What? Well, number one, servants of Christ. Number two, stewards. Number three, faithful servants, faithful stewards. People who are faithful. He doesn't say it is required of stewards that they be found eloquent. Doesn't say that they be found wise. It doesn't say that they be found successful. It doesn't say that they're significant. It doesn't say that they should be bound by the judgment or evaluation of other people. No, they should be found faithful. Using everything that God has made us and using everything that God has given us for the cause of Christ. And that's as we move on. Paul says that verse 3 and 4, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. That's what was going on in the church at Corinth. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And, and, and there was judging going on. Well, we like this one because he's this. We like that one because he's that. Paul says, I care very little. And he wasn't just saying, I could care less about you. He was saying, it doesn't matter. In fact, he goes on and he says there in verse 3, indeed, I do not even judge myself. So he said, if I don't, it's kind of like he's saying, listen, I'm not going to be bothered with what you think, how you judge me if you're examining me because I don't even judge myself or examine myself in that regard. Why does he say that? Because look at verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm not even judging myself. I think I'm doing okay, but that doesn't make me innocent. Then he goes on and he says this, it is the Lord who judges me, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Listen, we talked about the judgment seat of Christ last week. Remember that? That after the rapture, the next event to happen on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. When Jesus Christ takes the church, us who know him, back to heaven to be with him. We meet him in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us. And we saw that. And we, he says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. What's that time? I believe it's the judgment seat of Christ. Await until the Lord comes. This isn't the second coming at the end of the tribulation, before the millennium. This is the rapture of the church. 
He says, he who, Jesus, will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. Don't think sin. Don't think evil. He's thinking what's hidden away in the heart that nobody sees. And then he defines it and will expose the motives of the heart. That's what we saw that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. When we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sin. Because it's only those who know Jesus that will be there this day, at this time. And what will we be judged for? How we have stewarded, how we have used, how we have managed everything that God has given us. And what are the motives that we did what we did with? That's the concern. He says at that time each will receive their praise from him. You see, the rewards that we talked about a little bit last week, because we don't want to get into eschatology, but it's here. So we'll talk about it that, to that degree, but there will be rewards. That'll be God's praise for how we have stewarded, how we have managed everything. So if you've got a God-given ability, we're going to get to spiritual gifts somewhere down the road in 1 Corinthians. If you're not serving God and you know Jesus Christ, guess what? You're missing it. Because God's given you an ability. As a believer. Man, I don't even know where my wallet is. I just went to reach for my wallet. It's not there. Okay. So, um, well, that's interesting. <laughs> All right. Is that the camp, Reed? We had a great men's retreat. Maybe I left it there. No, I think I know where it is. That's all right. I was going to pull my wallet out and, and just talk about money and say as it relates to that whole business of, of, of uh, using what we have for him. If you're, if, you're, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, and you're not giving of your abilities, you're not serving, if you're not giving of what God has put in your wallet, Ladies, in your purse or whatever you carry your money in, you're going to have to answer to God for that. Why? Because God gave it to you. Let's keep going. That's the stewarding. That's the judgment that Paul talks about here. And then he goes on, and in verse, uh, well, as he, as he does that, as we're talking about this whole business, that's, that's where the judgment of faithfulness is going to happen. If, if, if he says, the steward must be proven faithful. Where will that happen? It'll happen right here at the judgment seat of Christ. How have we served God? What was the motive for which we did? We do it to be seen by other people? Did we do it out of guilt because you were asked? Because uh, Stephanie or Shehung or Scott or Paul or 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 any of our leaders of ministries asked you to serve and it was. Uh, Okay. What was the motive with which we used? Now, we don't have... I, I know that people that are serving love to do that. I, I, I know that's true. And that's the faithfulness that we're talking about. But, but not just faithful, humble. Paul's saying, hey, as he goes on, he says, we're servants of Christ and trusted 
uh, and, and, and stewards, servants of Christ, and those entrusted with the mysteries, stewards. They must prove faithful, but we get down to verse 6, and, he said, and also it's the idea of humble people. So what are we? Paul's saying we're faithful, we're faithful servants, we're faithful stewards, and we're humble. We're humble followers of Jesus. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself, all that he's been talking about. And Apollos, for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. What's he talking about? Well, if you'll look back in the first three chapters, you'll see a number of times it'll say in there, it is written. It is written. And you'll see Paul quotes the Old Testament, and he puts that in there, and he says, don't go beyond what's written. That's what he's talking about, I believe. And then he goes on and he says, then you will not be puffed up. What's that? Pride. When Paul talks about being puffed up, he's talking about pride. And he says, you won't be puffed up and in, in being a follower of one of us over against the other. That's what we've been talking about. I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Peter. So he's saying that won't happen. When you understand, when you stick to the truths of the word of God, you won't be proud because that was the problem in the church of Corinth. Verse 7. He goes on and he says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Paul is saying to the believers in the church of Corinth, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are raising one, playing one leader against the other? That's what he just said in verse 6. You've been proud and, and you're playing one against the other. You're raising one follower up as over against the other. He said, that's pride. That's puffed up. He says, who do you think you are? Do you think you're superior to everybody? That's that question. For what makes you different? Who considers you as superior? You see, because all that you have and all that you are, all that I am and all that I have is what? From God, that's what he says. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you boasting as though you didn't? Why are you taking the credit for what God has done for you? Why are you taking the credit for what God has given you? That's what Paul's saying. He said, you folks got a problem with pride. And what we're talking about, Paul says when, he, when he's talking about what we are, as he's saying, as your leaders, what are we? We're faithful servants and stewards and we're humble followers of Jesus. That doesn't allow for pride because pride creates disunity. Pride creates division. Pride creates disagreement. Pride causes quarreling. Well, in verses 8 to 13... It's quite a text because there's some sarcasm. Paul gets really sarcastic here with the people. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things. That's verse 6. He asks those questions. Who do you think you are? Everything that you have, God gave you. And if he gave it to you, why are you taking credit for it? Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. And this is the sarcasm. Listen, you have all you need anyway already. You've already become rich. You have begun to reign. Some translations say you're already kings. You're acting like kings. Sarcasm here. 
And that without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. And then he says this, for it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Paul was talking about after the Roman army would conquer a, t a city or a country or wherever, and they'd bring them back into their city and their town. The, the king or the Caesar or whoever, the general, would, would be at the front. The one who was reigning and in charge would be at the front of the procession. And then they'd have the people that they had conquered, the slaves and the and the people at the poor people and that they had, had they, they made slaves and brought back from their war victory they had to march at the end as those who were and they marched right into the coliseums and that's where they would fight the roman gladiators or be given to the wild animals that's exactly what paul's talking about here And he says, verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are so wise in Christ. He says, we are weak, but you're so strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry. He's talking about those who are serving God. He and Paulus and Peter he says, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. What's he talking about here? This is how the world will treat God's people. The disciples came to Jesus at the end of John chapter 15 and, and they didn't like it. They said, Lord, everybody hates us. And what Jesus say? He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Of course they'll hate you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours. Got home from the men's retreat yesterday. Jane told me she'd gotten some news from Tim Compton's mom. Tim and Laura Compton are missionaries to Thailand. You probably haven't heard about it because what's going on today, right now, in Myanmar, Burma, is awful. Thailand, where Tim and Laura serve, is right next to Myanmar. They border. There was an election, followed by a coup, a landslide election, followed by a military coup, and the military leader now, you won't see this, but they are killing God's people. Murdering them, beating them, raping them, burning down their houses. And Sue Compton, we've known Tim and Tim's dad and mom for a long, long, long time. And Sue was sent an, an update about what's going on there because you won't read. Oh, you'll read about shootings and all the rest of that, but you won't read that it's God's people that are being shot. 
some others too. Our brothers and sisters, folks, are being killed. They're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And Paul says, listen, you people don't be so proud and arrogant. You're not so wise you think you are. You're already rich. You're already kings. He's saying that's not the way it is. He said, if we're going to be like Jesus, they hated him. They're going to hate us too. Folks, that's happening right here in our country. And it doesn't matter who is president. That's going to happen. Why? Because God's word says it will. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Myanmar. If you want to get a little idea about what was going on in the past, this isn't the first time this has happened. There's a documentary called Free Burma Rangers. It's on Right Now Media. We saw it somewhere else. I don't remember where we watched it. It's a group of believers go in to protect other believers. But pray. Pray for Tim and Laura for wisdom. Pray for the brothers and sisters in Myanmar who are being beaten and killed. Well, Paul says that's what we are. He goes on and he says in verses 14 to 17, who you need to be. Who you need to be. Look, verse 14, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Paul's heart is aching for his people as a father aches for his son, as my dear children, as a father aches for his daughter, my dear children. Paul uses that analogy. He says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he said, oh, I've made known to you the gospel. We've given you the, we've proclaimed the truths of, of the gospel, but we've also given you our lives as well. He says, I'm warning you. Follow Jesus, verse 15, even if you had 10,000 guardians, a guardian was like a tutor, a babysitter on steroids. I mean, they did everything. But he says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel of Jason. You are a spiritual dad today. Therefore, verse 16, he says, I urge you to imitate me. What? Paul, what in the world? are What? I urge you to imitate me. What is he saying? How could he just got done ripping the Corinthians about their own pride? Now what does he say? Hey, imitate me. Look at verse 17. Paul says, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love. See, Paul ministered to Timothy too. Paul was only a servant through whom Timothy believed. 
So he could say, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. Ah, faithful. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Every church. He will remind you. When I'm saying, imitate me, he says, Timothy's coming. Paul wasn't there. He was in Ephesus writing. He says, Timothy's coming, and he's going to remind you of my way of life. What? No, not Paul personally. Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul says, imitate me, follow me, that's not some proud, arrogant statement. Because later in chapter 11 of this same letter, 1 Corinthians, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. See, Paul was a leader and he's saying, you follow me, you imitate me. Why? Because I'm imitating Jesus. This past weekend, Scott already told you about our men's retreat. Had a great time. Dwight Peterson challenged us with the idea of, so what does it look like to be like Jesus? Our mission as a church, more people, more like Jesus. What does that mean? See, we have our spiritual answers. But do we actually know what that means? And then do we actually do what it means? Do we live like Jesus? That was the, that's what Paul is saying. Be like Jesus. Who do you need to be? Like Jesus. Imitate me, Paul says. Why? Because I'm imitating Jesus. We need to do what Jesus did. We need to respond like Jesus would. We, we're in smaller groups and got together. And some of us, I was with a group of guys, and we got talking about... How do you be like Jesus when you're sitting at the red light and that guy wants to turn left in front of you when you have the right away? That jerk. Would Jesus say that? What would Jesus do? Right? We, we could go on all kinds. What, what would happen? I think Dwight used this illustration just if you pulled up to McDonald's in the drive-thru and you ordered a hamburger, french fries, and a Coke and you got a chicken sandwich, french fries, and a Coke. What do we do? We go inside and throw it on the counter and what's wrong with you? I didn't order a chicken sandwich. Now I know none of us do that, right? What does it mean? Paul says, be like Jesus. That's who you need to be. That's what Paul's saying. Why? What does it mean? It means that if we're like Jesus, we won't be divided. We won't be quarreling with one another. We won't be disagreeing in an ugly, pride, prideful way. We won't be experiencing division. We won't be, I, I like this one, I'm following them, and I'm following them, and we will be living on mission. 
we will be a servant, a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. We will be a faithful steward. We will be a humble follower of Jesus. Well, he wraps it up. So what are you going to do about that? We challenged our men at the retreat. I, I was challenged. We, we talk about stuff all the time. We know many times what it is that Jesus wants us to do. We know what the Bible says we ought to do. Do we do it? What are we going to do about this? Paul says to them, some of you have become arrogant, verse 18, as if I were not coming to you. You see, Paul said, I'm coming. I'm sending Timothy now, but I'm coming. Some of them, he said, were being arrogant. Ah, oh, he'll never come. And besides, his, his bite in the letters is far worse than his bark in person. Remember when we read that out of 2 Corinthians? He says, but I will, verse 19, come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. It's like, okay, put your money where your mouth is. See, keep in mind, Paul's talking to them as a father who loves his children. He's warning them. Oh, it's, it's firm. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer, verse 21? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? What will you do about it? Paul says, shall I come in a spirit of discipline or with love? My question to you is, what will you do? We've been talking about unity for a couple of months now. Paul's been talking about it for four chapters. What will you do to ensure unity in our churches amongst God's people? Well, the answer is be like Jesus. And let me close with this, Ephesians chapter 4. John had no idea I was going to close with this, and he had it up on the we read that earlier. He read that to you. Ephesians chapter 4. I love when that happens. It's just like God's putting all that together. God knew all about that, and here it is. Paul says, Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner for the Lord then, because Paul was in prison when he wrote Ephesians, one of the prison epistles. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is that? That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, when he said, you're, you're sanctified, you're set apart as holy to God, now live like holy people. He's saying, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What's the calling? To be holy. To be holy. You are holy, so live like it. That's what, verse 2, be completely humble. We just talked about humility, not pride. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in bearing with one another in love. Wow. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace.
That's unity. That's where it comes. Folks, God takes unity of the church seriously. Absolutely. And the message of that unified cross is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's why Paul said, I've determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. doesn't matter who this leader is or who's following that. He says, what we need is focusing on Jesus Christ and Him crucified because that will unify the church. That's what made Jason float out of that room after he talked to Jason and led him to Christ. The joy of the Lord. God takes the unity of the church seriously. And we need to be actively pursuing God's mission. That's what Paul meant when he said, I've determined they're nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know what? Part of, part of unity is taking the church seriously. We say God takes unity of the church seriously, but part. Part of that unity is taking the church seriously. Is the church a priority in your life? Well, I love Jesus, but not the church. It, it can't be that way. All across our country, I probably read two, three times a week what's happening from pastors talking about churches all over our country. I'm assuming it's around the world, but what I'm getting is from the U.S. And what's happening is people are staying home from church. Staying home. And I don't mean the service at 930 or this building. I mean us. We are the church. See, because when you watch live stream, and we're glad to do that, and I know we have people today. I got a call last night from somebody who was exposed to COVID. Well, we don't want them coming and getting us. We, we know we have those kind of, we had a couple people already this week, we heard too about who had it. We understand that. But what's happened is we made it real easy for people not to come to gather with God's people anymore. I must slipped and said, come to church. No, you don't come to church. You be the church. We are the church. And we can't be the church when we're not together. We can't be the church when we're watching a screen. We need one another, folks. And when we start experiencing persecution as God's people in the United States, we need one another. The TV isn't going to encourage you. We will encourage you together. God takes unity seriously. We need to take the church seriously. I'm telling you what, we had an amazing time at the men's retreat. I think I've already said that. But God stirred hearts, right? Al, Jesse? And we as men of this church need to stand together and minister to one another because we're one in Christ. Father, this morning my heart aches 
for our brothers and sisters who are being beaten and killed. Aches for our brothers and sisters in China who when they gather together do so at the possibility of being arrested or coming home to a house that's been burned down. Our brothers and sisters in Iraq, same thing. God, my heart aches more so for your church here in the U.S. who takes the gathering of our people for granted. It's great if we do, who cares if we don't. I don't like wearing a mask. Well, I won't go if I don't wear a mask. And yet people are losing their lives to be together. And we're caught up in petty, divisive stuff. Oh, God, help us. To know the power of God in this church. So that the story that Jason told us this morning would be happening every week. Because somebody here was sharing Christ. Living out the gospel. Imitating, being like Jesus. And oh God, I don't want to be angry um, at our people. Uh, we love these folks. Hate our sin. I hate my sin. I hate my spiritual laziness. God help us to be who we say we are for the glory of God. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.